song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode this week, Dave. Indeed, as usual, as par for the course for us. Which, of course, we announced on the Patreon-only post for the follow-up files. Uh, This week's topic is Parks and Rec, which is a show Dave actually introduced me to, uh, much like Venture Brothers and a couple of other things. Yeah, I I think pretty much everything we've done that's been entertainment other than The Music Man, you've introduced me to. So this is just the latest in a long line of those things. So I guess the world has me to blame for you. (laughs) And my mother, and uh, now my wife. So, you know, you're in a, you're in a strong lineage of a powerful woman. That's uh... right where I belong, right where I belong. <laughs> I actually introduced you to the show because of a specific episode. Ron, it's actually not that serious. I just need you to stay calm, okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to stay angry. I find that relaxes me. Okay, Ron, we called 911 and they're going to send a ranger. Oh, damn. This is a mess. The Rangers won't let us come back next year. You know what? We're not going to think about that right now. You guys, can you just put him on the daybed in the carcass uh, room? Daybed? Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. Hold on. Donna? Donna? Are you okay? What? Is it your heart? Are you having trouble breathing? that's one of the great payoff lines of any episodic sitcom yeah and um it's it's a show uh long we're not gonna get too in depth into what the show is actually about it's about uh a parks and recreation office in the small town of pawnee indiana uh first in friendship third in obesity I love this show so much. Um, it is very Simpsons-esque without the horrifying portrayal of domestic violence. And it's a little bit like the it's like the West Wing and the Simpsons had a baby and the office filmed it, I think would be the best way to describe it. Wow, that's a really bizarre chimeric situation you've described, but but pretty accurate. I think it is of all the children or stepchildren or descendants of The Office, I think it's far and away the best. And even though I'm not the biggest expert on The Office, I know some people know just everything about that show. Uh, I really think it's the kind of one of the so-called Office clones that really kind of outdid the uh, the American Office itself. The most important thing to me is that, and this is why we picked it for the Dangerous Alliance, this reason specifically, it's a crazy stacked roster, or in this case, cast of performers and at the same time, all of them together make this beautiful, like, symbiotic, like, I don't know how to just, it's this beautiful ecosystem that the show has that sustains it through every episode. And it's, it's weird because, like I said, they have a lot of really talented performers, Amy Poehler, Rashida Jones, Nick Offerman, all these incredibly, Chris Pratt, Aziz Ansari, Audrey Plaza, like, the list literally goes on and on. But at the same time, you look at the cast and they all kind of punched above their weight. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that this show, you know, was in the way that a great wrestling stable is. This show was responsible for taking some people who were kind of in the middle and getting them into the top and taking some people who were maybe in the bottom or lower middle and boosting them up into the upper middle. Like, I mean, and Aziz Ansari, uh, Chris Pratt, Aubrey Plaza, the three people who you mentioned specifically, I mean, I knew who Aziz Ansari was from comedy specials on Netflix, but like I didn't know Aubrey Plaza or Chris Pratt whatsoever by this show. And it's it's just wild that, you know, Parks and Rec starts 
in 2009. And by the end, time it ends in 2015, Chris Pratt is the second or third biggest action star in Hollywood. Yeah, and it's something that you see the show develop over time. And I think that's what the show does best. And I think that's specifically what didn't happen for the Dangerous Alliance. As you said last week, Flair came back and they were just like, the Dangerous Alliance never happened. None of this ever happened. We're just going to pretend like Flair's here to save the day. It was the uh, Stevens here, Stevens here joke from (laughs) Harvey Birdman. Yeah, and I I think that's something that the Dangerous Alliance never get a chance to. But you look at the first season of Parks and Rec, and it's kind of the ultimate... You don't really have to watch that first season. You can just kind of skip through and catch their names and you'll be good. Yeah, definitely. And to connect back to something I said just a minute ago, I think the first season was more of a straight up office clone, just in a new situation and with Amy Poehler at the helm. But I think by that second and definitely by the time you get to the third season, uh, it really was its own thing that had kind of grown and they kind of burst out of the office. I mean, literally, like I said, the first episode I got into was the camping episode where they're out in the world, not just in a pressure cooker together. And I think that's one of the things that sets Parks and Rec aside from a lot of those workplace comedies. A lot of those workplace comedies, they're in the pressure cooker of the office, and that's why they're at each other's throats. Whereas in Parks and Rec, it was really open world. Like there was the whole town, the whole state even at times that they were exploring together. So that not only created more situations than you got on The Office, where it was just like, what are the new ways these annoying characters can annoy the nice characters? You know what I mean? So instead of falling into that, they really did kind of open the world out and create all these different situations and all these ways that wacky, strong characters could interact that weren't just like, slightly elevated, cartoonish, clowny, slice-of-life work comedy. Yeah, you couldn't make Parks and Rec... Sorry, you couldn't make The Office be called uh, Scranton, PA, and have it work the same way. You could have totally called Parks and Rec Pawnee, and it would have been basically the same show. It would have been a show about the Parks and Rec office in this small town, but they spend a lot of time in the town. And they build out, like I said, uh, a very Simpsons-esque universe uh, in the way that wrestling companies do, where they kind of have these these main stars, but they have all of these people that interact, or they should, have all of these people who interact on the peripheral that kind of build out the, the not, I, I will never use the term real, the verisimilitude of the world they're trying to create, that there is like an internal logic to that world. Pawnee is crazy, but it makes sense. I think the thing that anchors the show and that makes it both a great comedy, but also something that's hard to laugh off, is that all the characters in Parks and Rec have really human motivations. Like, they might be the most built-out, crazy, cartoonish, clownish character, but, like, at the end of the day, like, Andy, like, wants to have a family and wants to play in a band and, like, be an artist. And, like, Tom thinks that he wants... You know, Tom thinks that he wants wealth, but he really just wants like success and self-confidence. You know, that they have these real, very human issues. And as you pointed out in the Snobs versus Slobs video, that's what's missing from wrestling so often that I think Parks and Rec really did well is, is the characters are strong because no matter how cartoonish or outsized or caricatured they are, their motivations are very simple and very relatable and very human and naturally 
uh, add spice to the various conflicts that they get into. Yeah, and it's something that you have to let develop. But I don't think it's just, let's not act like it was like magically they went from what is, again, I, I kind of hinted at it, but the first season is not good. It's not a it's not a hidden gem. It's not anything like that. It's there are individual scenes from the show where you can see where the show came into Parks and Rec in the second season and beyond. Like any interaction with uh, Anne, who's Rashida Jones' character, and Amy Poehler's character, Leslie Nope's best friend. All of those scenes kind of land because it's Amy Poehler and Rashida Jones, two of the best com- comedic actresses working. But, like, there's a lot of shit. It's very office in the sense that they're incompetent people who are barely, like, holding on to their jobs, which, in an office at a paper company, has a much different connotation than public servants. Like, having public servants be incompetent morons doesn't work. It makes you not like them, as opposed to seeing them as, like, bumbling boobs. Yeah, and I think instead of being incompetent, which, like, yeah, you said, you know, especially as we've gotten further and further into the 21st century, the idea of incompetent government has kind of gotten less and less funny over time. Um, But instead of making them incompetent, like I was saying before, they gave them these sort of like outsized cartoonish dreams. Like they're real people in real world situations, but they have the kind of dreams that the characters have in kids' movies. Like everybody on that show is kind of a kid at heart. Like even Bron Swanson, who in the earlier seasons is portrayed as being so stoic, you know, it's very clear by season four or season five, you know, that he's that it's that he's just as big hearted as everybody else. But but it, but in various ways, all these characters have these almost like I said, almost kids movie style views of the world. Yeah, but they don't lose that. They keep those char- uh, character traits and they develop them and which is how you go from a first season, which is not good at all except for like individual moments of brilliance and pro- not brilliance, but like ch- light. And I guess the last episode is a pretty good one. And then you go from the second season, which is good. And it kind of builds what, what you would call a voice. And then the third season, I mean, they just hit the ground running. And what happens is you see what you can do with a good base. Like a, let's say like a, let's say you had the four horsemen. You can add people around the four horsemen to make it better. And they kind of did. They, they, that aren't necessarily working with the four horsemen, but act as a foil. Whoever your stars are, they can act as a foil. And they do that with uh, Adam Scott as Ben Wyatt and Rob Lowe as Chris Traeger. And I think the bringing in those two in the middle to end of the second season and having them stay on through the rest of the show is probably the most important thing that happens to the show. Uh, there are other non, uh, I should say external things that change the trajectory of the show. But to me, the big thing that happens in the transition from the second season to the third season is that they get Adam Scott and Rob Lowe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for a lot of different reasons. I think it balanced out the cast. And and I think maybe most importantly, considering that Leslie is the protagonist, I mean, they're all protagonists, but Leslie is the protagonist. She's the main character. She's the person whose like, career journey we're really on. Um, but they brought Ben on to, to give... Uh, Leslie, like a love interest who you could actually root for. Because in the early seasons, whether it's um, Dave, who's portrayed by Louis C.K., or whether it's uh, Mark, portrayed by Paul Schneider, like she is into either some really pathetic 
or or just really kind of skeezy guys in the earlier season. And I think it was important to to create a guy who you could root for her to get with and who we as an audience could be reasonably sure at his heart was a good person. Like even if they were having difficulties in the show, you kind of knew that their relationship had a heart and that made you feel safe in the show. Whereas like her trying to impress Mark in seasons one and two is like really unsettling. And and as you've said on this show before, it kind of sells out Leslie in a way that they never did in the late seasons ever again. And I think that was one of the things that saved the show is that they stopped selling out Leslie. And even though she's kind of a clown and even though her dreams are like a little too big, she's like such a wonderful, loving, caring person at her core. And I think Ben in some ways, not to be too cheesy here, I think the Ben character really completed the Leslie character in a way the show needed to, to really take the next step. Yeah. They let things grow organically. Uh, You don't see, they don't get together right away. There's actual obstacles between Ben and Leslie getting together. First, it's them not liking each other that much. And then it's them uh, in a very special episode, the flu season episode, uh, Ben understanding that Leslie is both talks the talk and walks the walk. And then I think they start to develop this idea of Amy Poehler, Leslie Nope as this, like, as what you think of when you think of like a John Cena baby face. She reminds me, this is the second, her and uh, Harold Hill are the two people who remind me the most of John Cena, where they're allowed to have that one quirk that develops over time into an actual personality trait. And her like steadfastness and her like over eagerness becomes a defining part of her character in a way that would make sense for that kind of person. And they develop these logic, they have these logical ideas that they build towards naturally better than almost any show I can think of. Yeah, it's really an organized show, and I think that sort of reflects uh, Leslie Nope or even Amy Poehler, but in this case, Leslie Nope herself. You know what I mean? That the the way that the show is driven and organized reflects the way that she is driven and organized in in her own life, and I think that's the strength of the show is the really strong protagonist and the fact that the show stayed true to the way that protagonist looks at the world because she's someone who is always looking for the next logical thing and they kept presenting the next logical thing like you were saying the only thing that she really rejects on the journey that is is like is ben right is love and that's what's so one of the things i think is so interesting in the show uh is like from a hero's journey perspective to get hackish and talk about uh campbell here Uh, I'm obsessed with the idea of the protagonist rejecting the call to adventure, that that's one of the things early on that happens, that initially someone doesn't want to go on the journey. But both Leslie and Ben in their lives are people who have never rejected the call. Like Leslie is the person who's compulsively like raising her hand and volunteering and wanting to take things on and opens herself up to every opportunity. And Ben is someone who became like a major city mayor when he was... They're both like very driven people who've said yes to everything. But the one thing that they in both their journeys have chosen to reject is like what seems to be a ready-made like love situation with both of us. And I think there's something really comedic at the route of like two people who are super driven 
Uh, and the one thing that they both decide to reject it is love. Like, I just think that's inherently funny for some reason. No, and it works well. Like, they, like, really earn every... That's the other thing, is they never... Since they never say, sell out any of their characters for any reason, which is something wrestling is in particular bad at, they earn almost everything they get to. It's why you can have a show, spoiler alert, where either Ben Wyatt or Leslie Nope, those characters can become some sort of presidential level politician is because you actually see them each individual time something's put in their way, actually come together to overcome it and achieve their goals. It's really like, it is a remarkable piece of television in that sense that they actually like, grow out characters but some of that involves getting rid of people like we mentioned brandanowitz but they also just change the way that some of the characters work completely like chris pratt is a completely different person in the first season andy is an asshole he's like in a basically an abusive boyfriend who's using Anne, and then he turns into this like lovable dolt but they hint at it in the first season that, like, at his core, he's a good person. But the first season, he's one of the true heels of the show in a way that they they did have, but they built out as people who could not directly stand in the way of what they were doing, right? But tangentially were involved. We're like, Andy is a problem, for the people in the show. And he's also a problem for the show itself because he's such a bad boyfriend. He uses his girlfriend in a way that's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. And part of that is they wanted to not have him on the show for that long. They were only going to have him for a season, but they got incredibly lucky both at this, this face turn, but then Andy was played by Chris Pratt. Like Andy Dwyer as like Chris Pratt as Andy Dwyer is like what made him a star in a lot of ways, but they also just got incredibly lucky that they had that guy and they recognized something in him. Sure. But like they had him, he was supposed to be gone and they made the decision to turn him into a baby face, which is kind of selling out the character. But I think it was sometimes you do actually have to make, de uh, make decisions in terms of like your face or heel alignment uh, to make a character work or not. Oh, definitely. And I think they used some kind of classic wrestling tactics to do it. I mean, they they got him away from Anne, and they attached him, they married him, to use old wrestling speak, and they literally did later on, and they married him to April, to, to, the, uh, to the Aubrey Plaza character. And that there's something different about uh, being in love with a traditionally beautiful woman who has a high earning job, she's a nurse, and getting her to do everything for you. Like, that's one thing. It's another thing to be hopelessly in love with a girl who's kind of an outcast and who just has kind of an okay job and trying to get her to run your life for you. You know what I mean? Like, they changed him from a boyfriend who expects his, his girlfriend to do everything for him to a boyfriend who expects his girlfriend to do everything for for him, but just by kind of adjusting who they were having him stand next to, they turned that from like a really gross kind of problematic trait into something that was really sweet. And as you say, really turned Chris Pratt into a big time star. I mean, while there's 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 very little similarity between Parks and Rec and Jurassic World, but you never get to Jurassic World if not Parks and Rec. Because it showed him as this unbelievably charming person. Like he, like we we're gonna use this word a lot. He earns 
April falling in love with him. He literally goes through like hero trials. He has to do this list of things for April. And then after he does all that crap, she finally like accepts that uh, he had, they were going to get together and then he ends up kissing Anne for some reason at a party. And he has to work his way back into April's good graces. But once they get that win, they get them married like to like, not that far after. And it's one of the most emotionally affecting episodes of television that you're going to see in terms of like unexpected joy and kind of like sentimental. They managed to get you on board with them in a way that doesn't happen in rest in, in television to them getting married as two young kids who don't have it all figured out. They literally even address it, but they give you this new character, this new, like, thing that again you don't see a lot especially in modern television of like this young couple that's going to struggle to like make ends meet and like start a family and all that shit and they they allow him to be wrapped in the cocoon of that like you said of these like two young kids in love where he is a partner in crime with april in a way that he was just like exploiting (laughs) he was exploiting Anne. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I love about the Andy-April relationship throughout the remainder of the show is April's hatred of Anne in spite of many tender moments. And I think that that is kind of the show, one of the show's ways of dealing with the way Andy was in season one, that, that April's hatred of Anne kind of reflects the show or the community or whatever of, of of their understanding of how bad Andy and Anne was. You know what I mean? That when the man who in her eyes is so great was with this other woman, like you could only see what a crummy idiot he was. And in some ways, I think that's sort of why that Anne and, and April have had this adversarial relationship throughout the rest of the, the run of the show. Yeah, until Anne leaves for Indianapolis and then she admits that she loves her and she's going to miss her. But they really, like, pull it out as long as they possibly can. Again, they earn that sentimentality of them actually her telling her she loves her and she's going to miss her. You're actually like, oh, that was a kind of, a, again, a emotionals. I don't know if that's the right word, but, like, it is actually an affecting show. It is a show that that is earnest without being cheesy, which is a really hard thing to do but they make great baby faces because of it. Oh yeah, and I mean, you talk about the American sitcom, you talk about a genre that in the late 80s, early 90s, like almost like OD'd on cheesiness and and choked on its own vomit. You know what I mean? Like there was an attempt in kind of the early to mid 80s to, to really like pump up the heart in American televised sitcoms. And you look at some of the stuff that's to people of our generation considered some kind of golden era stuff from the early 90s. Like I always think of Full House, like, I think that show is fucking awful. Like, don't tell anybody I said that, but I think that show is fucking awful. Just because that's an example of a sitcom that became so much about the heart that it like forgot to be funny. And I think that Parks and Rec was part of an effort in the 21st century that was, you know, started by shows like The Office to really reclaim and redefine the idea of a sitcom and make it something that could have heart, but also be funny without selling out the characters, as you always say. How much of that is getting lucky is really hard to tell because uh, we talked, uh, we started off the show talking about it. They were given, what, seven seasons, right? Yes, seven seasons, 125 episodes. Which is like a really, that's syndication money. That's, that's good. And the fact that a show like this, 
They never won Emmys, which is the other important thing, because you can have a show like this that wins Emmys over and over again and keep that show going for a lot longer because of the prestige of like, well, it's an Emmy winning show, so people are going to buy the DVDs. Parks and Rec survived almost on the momentum of everyone watching it and knowing they had something special. That like this show was going to be remembered as the show that launched a bunch of careers. But I think that's the combination of the really talented roster they had, the really talented cast, and Michael Schur, who's a really important showrunner right now. He is the Vince McMahon, for lack of a better term, of Parks and Rec. And he and he did this with a good place. He is great at building out these kinds of worlds where it's not it's earnest without being cheesy. And it, they're babyface territories. Michael Schur is exceptionally good at creating babyface territories. He got Park, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, too. So that's another show. Like, all of those are babyface territories. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's part of, I don't want to say the rebirth, because, I mean, network television certainly uh, is just about as whatever the opposite of strong is, as it's been at any point in its life. Oh, I think that would be weak. Uh, network television is just about as weak as it has been at, at any point in its life. But I think that in the last 10 years, there, there really has been some work done kind of reclaiming how a network show works. Because we've talked about multiple times the kind of late 90s, early 2000s era where like everything just becomes really, really tawdry, really, really crash TV. Even, even sitcoms like Seinfeld is, but I made a joke about this on Twitter, No Hugs, No Learning was like Seinfeld's thing. Yeah, and I think that Parks and Rec was really um, an important force in kind of bringing back this idea that characters could learn something uh, on a network sitcom and it still could be really funny. Yeah, and I think it's important to get into what was funny about Parks and Rec, but not explain the jokes. And I think there's a couple of things that Parks and Rec did really well. One is play with form of the jokes like visual jokes were really important there's uh there's the uh you shot my mercedes joke and there's my favorite joke on any sitcom ever period which is and i'm not going to play the clip because it doesn't make sense unless you watch it but i'm saying pause the podcast right now and look up parks and rec comeback kid or parks and rec ice (laughs) and you will probably find the to me the single it reminds me a lot of the uh mary tyler moore chuckles the clown funeral where like the entire thing is funny in individual moments that it's happening but the course of the story they're telling which is basically long story short um leslie is doing campaign speech at a local arena Turns out the local arena has already switched over to the ice rink and the red carpet that Aziz Ansari's character Tom was supposed to get for them is way too short to reach the incredibly small stage that they had to build because they got pulled over for driving illegally with too many people in the cab. It builds to this one scene that you, it, Gloria Stefan's get on your feet plays and it's, it's just, it's perfect. They like built an entire episode around a three minute idea in a way that you kind of get to see in a great, a uh, great modern wrestling match, uh, not modern, I should say, an, a great old school wrestling match where they kind of, or um, something you'd see in New Japan where they build an idea into the end game of the 
episode or in this case, a match or episode that they kind of build and build and build to. They work the arm or in this case, they take away half the stage. They like do things to structure them that the payoff is this much larger idea at the end. And it's something that as a, as like a show, it's it it reminds me a lot of a really well-constructed match. Oh yeah, definitely. Actually, you know, when you were when you were describing that sort of psychology, I was immediately thinking of uh, one of my favorite matches, which is the Ricky Steamboat Rick Rude uh, Beach Blast match, the Iron Man match. And it, it, it's uh, you know, in that episode of Parks and Rec, they think that they are going to throw the perfect fundraiser because they've really come together as a team. You know, they've got everything set up on short notice. They've found Pistol Pete, this legendary small town basketball star, to come and endorse Leslie at the rally. And it seems like everything's perfect and they've really got it figured out. That's like at the Beach Blast uh, Iron Man match. Rick Rude, early in the match, drops a knee off the top rope onto Steamboat, ostensibly to crush his throat and injure him and make the rest of the match easier. So, like, he's got this perfect strategy worked out. But because of the rules, much like the law in Parks and Rec, right, they run against the law. They get pulled over on the way to the event. So because of the rules, he comes off the top rope in Bill Watts WCW and loses a fall. Then in the final seconds of the match, when he realizes that his plan is failing, uh, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, the last minute of that match is just like uh, whip into the ropes, clothesline, pin, two count, whip into the rose line, back body drop, pin, two count, whip into the ropes, arm drag, pin, two count. Like he's just frantically, frantically in the last minutes of the match trying to uh, to get that win because he knows that he screwed himself when he thought he had the perfect scheme. And, and that episode, even though they're totally different, right, it's still very thematically similar. They think they have the perfect scheme. And then when they realize, when they finally get there and it's it's the 11th hour or it's, it's 11.59 and they realize that it's not coming together the way they thought it would, the desperation that ensues is just hilarious. Whether, like I said, whether it's whether it's two minutes of just running the ropes in desperation or whether it's two minutes of continually slipping on ice. You know what I mean? Either way, it's, it's just so satisfying to see someone who, who thinks they've got something all figured out and it really comes crashing down around them. Another thing they do exceptionally well is play with the form. And I, I think that's a thing that wrestling doesn't do nearly enough, which is th- so parts and rec, like Dave mentioned much earlier, was an office spinoff, more or less, created by the by Mike, like we mentioned, Michael Schur, who worked with Greg Daniels, I believe, on The Office. So he 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 moved on to Parks and Rec, and they kept a lot of the similar um, talking head shots, which The Office is known for. It's the, the Office, though, is explicitly a documentary, right? Parks and Rec is also is not a documentary. It is just shot in a way that allows them to have separate talking heads for some reason. They never address it. And it kind of makes the show work. And they lean on it less as the show goes on because it starts to make less and less sense. But there is a point at which they're using this weird, like, genre-breaking... Modern Family does it, too. This genre-breaking idea of having the thoughts of the characters, the motivations of the characters, the asides, the comic asides you would see in like Shakespeare popping up and doing them in a visual way that it doesn't break the narrative. It doesn't break the flow of the episode. It adds to the flow of the episode 
in a way that is based on our idea of what a post office sitcom can look like without making it seem like they've completely gotten rid of what makes a television show or a sitcom on a tele on television work. Oh, definitely. And I think it was taking what worked about sitcoms, you know, from the from the birth of television, from like the Honeymooners or whatever, like what had made sitcoms from the Honeymooners through, let's say, Fresh Prince or Friends even, what had made those shows really work, but then blending that with the kind of 21st century confessional reality show bit. I mean, that really comes from like real world, but it was really kind of fleshed out and refined, you know, in the kind of early 2000s boom of, uh, of reality shows. So I think they nicely combined what worked about sitcoms and what was best about reality shows and, and, and kind of brought them together to create something that, like I was saying, Vinny, I think is really more than The Office, because you said that The Office is kind of explicitly a documentary or a mockumentary, whereas Parks and Rec just felt like a normal sitcom where you had this very personal, confessional relationship with all the characters. And that's part of what creates that great ensemble feel that you know makes both Parks and Rec and Dangerous Alliance work. Yeah, and I, I think the uh, what the, the other thing it reminds me of is, and I know this is something that's going to get people very angry with me. What I like about like the the Mojo Raleigh quality selfie like backstage promos where it's literally him being like, I'm pissed off and I'm going to say this and disseminate this in the simplest way possible. There's an actual logic to the way that they're telling that part of the story without like, you have to tell these parts from to make the joke land or the, the new information. Like when you find out that uh, April and Andy are together. I don't know. I guess we're dating. It's new. Whatever, I don't like labels. Go away. Those things, they, again, and this, if you get nothing else from this episode, understand that the most important thing about Parks and Rec is it never sold out its characters unless it needed to buy a different version of that character. It never sold out a character for short-term gain. Oh, definitely, and I mean, we talk about, or many people talk about how baby faces don't work today. And you're talking about Parks and Rec as a show of great baby faces. And what's one of the things that makes those great baby faces? Exactly what you just said. They're never sold out. And as you correctly say, wrestling is so bad at not selling out its characters. So when people ask, why are there all these great lovable characters on scripted TV that aren't in wrestling? Well, part of it is because writers of scripted TV in the platinum age of television are, are really, you know, trained not to sell out the characters. Whereas, you know, in WWE, it's constantly happening. So when people ask, like, where are the baby faces? Well, part of that is that the baby faces are constantly being sold out. They're constantly doing things that are either against values that they've previously established or are contrary to the relationship that the audience has with them or kind of jaws the audience out of the relationship they have with them. Or, or other things of that nature. I mean, the characters getting sold out is why they, there aren't the great baby faces anymore. Yeah, and what's kind of incredible about Parks and Rec is not that they don't have heels. How about no Park? Who here thinks Parks are stupid? Let the record show that everyone is raising their hands. I happen to know for a fact that Pawnee's favorite fast food restaurant, Paunch Burger, needs a new location. Now, seeing as how the future of Lot 48 is open for debate, I move we sell it to Paunch Burger for a nice profit. You don't even have to be Asian to do math that simple. You told me you wanted a dog park. 
psych. It's not fair. You lied to me. You just got jammed. They have great heels, but they don't let them ruin the baby face's day. They make, again, they make them earn it. They don't, they aren't heels for the sake of being heels. They are heels because Joan Calamezzo is a really broken person that they constantly, it's not a punching bag kind of thing. It's that she is developed over the time she's on the show to be seen as a really vengeful, broken person. There are people who are kind of in between like the reporter who is not a bad person, but is also not willing to give our baby faces like Amy the benefit of the, not even the benefit of the doubt, but they are not willing to lie for them. They're not willing to like when they, they don't sell them out as much as like Leslie will say something stupid and she won't be able to get away with it. And I think that's okay. It kind of keeps your having somebody like that or Chris Traeger played by Rob Lowe is the city manager. And he's one of the guys one of the characters that puts the kibosh in some of their bigger dreams. And to a lesser extent, Ben Wyatt, who technically for most of the show works for Rob Lowe's character. He's like the comptroller of the city or whatever. Um, they act as governors on our characters with the main characters, the baby faces, without actually being bad guys. The world itself is kind of the heel in Parks and Rec, but also they have bad groups of people like Eagleton, like Joan Calamezzo, like uh, the Councilman Jam. There are people who are bad people, but it's a show that survives not because the heels are great and they have good baby faces going, great baby faces going against them, but because the baby faces are so great and face such a larger challenge. There's what, like the 13 different types of stories. One of them is like, is person versus society right and it's kind of like this group of people versus the larger things in their society it happens to be that their society is this weird town called pawnee and and an eagleton and like the and to a lesser extent the larger outside world but they kind of have to go against a real thing like the inertia of human interaction and like community development and community betterment like there's they they have actual things, actual stakes. That's the word I'm looking for. They have actual stakes in the show that allow you to have these baby faces with pretty great heels, but the baby face, it's a baby face territory through and through. Yeah, certainly. And I think you're right to mention the initial relationship that Chris and, and Ben really have on the town of Pawnee, which is they are the regulators. And in some sense, they really are the kind of authority figures that we don't get in wrestling you know they they are except for page they remind me a lot of page actually i will say that i think page is what and that's why she's been a breath of fresh air in a way that not kurt angle wasn't because he was also a bumbling boob the second time he used that um he kurt angle is an idiot who's bad at his job page is good at her job and doesn't she reminds me a lot of leslie nope actually that's why i bring it up is that we finally have like an authority figure on wwe television who is a person who's in charge of a show who's making sure that the people that work for her do what she tells them to when she tells them to do it but doesn't do so with some sort of like overarching agenda she literally just wants to do her job well yeah, definitely. What, what I was going to point out about, about uh, Chris and Ben is that they can, they present obstacles for the baby faces without being heels themselves, which is something that WWE has always really struggled with that like 
the the uh, authority figure in the WWE is typically like a strong, very, very powerful heel who is doing mean things to people because they're power hungry and mean. Whereas like, if you think back to even Jack Tunney, like he created problems for Bret Hart or Hulk Hogan or whatever, but it was just because he was the voice for the machinations of like bureaucracy in the way that Chris and Ben are supposed to be. And so they were important regulators on the other characters who kept the other characters from getting kind of like too goofy or outsized or they they kept those characters grounded in real life while still themselves you know being good likable people who you wanted to see succeed because I mean part of the WWE problem that they've created is like they've created in part this narrative where they're the evil empire. I'm not saying that's true or untrue. I'm just saying it's in part a self-created narrative because of the way they've always portrayed, or at least in the last 20 years, have portrayed the majority of authority figures on TV. And that's definitely a Michael Schur thing. Like Brooklyn Nine-Nine actually gets flack on Twitter for being a too positive portrayal of cops, which I think is tied into a lot of things that to me would be understandable in the context of almost any other show but Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Having said that, I think he does a very good job of explaining the motivations in a meta sense of the people that he's describing in the show. Like, he believes public servants like Leslie Nope are the best thing about our country, and they deserve to have shows written about them. He's not saying every bureaucrat is like Leslie Nope, but he's saying that there are bureaucrats that are like Leslie Nope, and we need to like acknowledge that they're good and work with those kinds of people in the same way that you do for um, for Brooklyn Nine Nine, and I think that's something that the WWE in particular is horrible with their morals for like, I don't know how else to define them are incredibly shitty and it manifests itself in the writing of the show. Like for a really long time, John Cena was a pretty actively toxically masculine person on camera. The rock is a toxically masculine person on camera. Like they have this big dick energy that kind of undercuts a lot of what they're doing on the show. And I think that is one of the other reasons it's really hard for them to develop baby faces is that, that you can have a strong ensemble or a strong showrunner and things will be fine. But if you want to be great, which I think WWE has, I think they have an incredibly strong roster, but I think at this point, uh, it's getting better, but the, sh- the showrunner they have and have had for a long time no longer understands what it means to be a good person with strong moral with a strong moral compass in the modern world. And I think that's why it's hard for Vince McMahon in particular to groom strong baby faces. Well, I think to get back to something that you said in the Snobs versus Slobs video, that's at least in part because Vince McMahon was never promoting that. Like even with Hulk Hogan, you were getting that kind of like picaresque slob anti-hero, you know, against the people looking down their noses at you. And, And you don't have to look hard at Vince McMahon's biography to find that he's got that kind of persecution complex, that it's like always about sticking it to someone else because they're looking down at you. So I think that it's not just that in his old age, he is 
or, or has lost sight of the ball in terms of promoting baby faces. I honestly think it's that he was never very good at promoting baby faces, even though he operated the most notoriously baby face territory in all of wrestling. Yeah. Uh, so I think, uh, now that we solved the WWE's babyface problem, it's uh, time to get to the question I've been thinking about the entire show, which is, who would make a better GM and authority figure for the WWE? Leslie Nope or Ron Swanson? Oh, man. Well, you know what? I think actually that Leslie Nope is exactly the kind of GM that we need in the uh, latter months of 2018. I think that she would be a fantastic wrestling general manager. Uh, both because, you know, I think she's someone, as I said before, who uh, through her zest for enforcing the rules and love for setting things right, could inadvertently place some uh, real obstacles in the way of the baby faces without becoming a heel herself. And I think that's really great. And I think that she would be a great target for heels to say nasty things about, which is another important role uh, of a baby face authority figure. So uh, I think that she'd be really good and really a perfect person for the WWE right now because Stephanie McMahon sure isn't the right voice piece for the uh, women's revolution. And I think Leslie Nope is actually exactly the kind of voice that could make that work. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's as good a reason as any. Uh, also, she's really great uh, bringing bad news to people. If I if making is, is the show's name's making it right, whatever whatever her show she does with Ron Swanson. Oh yeah, making it. Uh, that I I watched the whole series. It was very good. British baking show S. Yeah. yeah uh, okay. Yeah. No, because I, I Kate and I, uh, my wife and I watched an uh, episode. We liked it. We weren't sure how good it was going to be. Uh, it has the the Gibb family seal of approval, so I will be I will be watching that. Um, for me, it's it's Ron, obviously, because um, I, I feel like a I I would actually pay money to see an interaction with either the Miz or Braun Strowman for completely different reasons. Um, I think that Braun Strowman uh, shoot is a really underrated comedic actor, like he. He carries himself the way that a funny big guy has, where they're very, very aware of their size relative to other people so that they control the space they're in very well. So I'd love to see uh, Adam Schur with uh, Nick Offerman in a scene. But I also think that the Ron Swanson character is the just the right ma- uh, amount of involved with everyday decisions that I want from my GM, which is like every... March 31st, he does <laughs> His incredible laziness and contempt for his own position actually makes him the perfect wrestling authority figure because at least he'll stay the fuck away. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. Uh, and, and from an actual acting perspective, I would love to see Nick Offerman with actual wrestlers. I would love to see Ron Swanson bouncing off of people. I wish they'd bring back the both Parks and Rec and the guest host thing just you don't really mean that you don't really mean that nick you don't really want them to bring back the guest host concept don't say it out loud don't say it out loud they might be listening (laughs) that's fair uh (laughs) summer fest nick (laughs) the yearly summer fest Ah, I remember the most disappointed I've ever been at a Raw episode was the episode that Dulé Hill and James Roday from Psych were supposed to be guesting <laughs> and James Roday had an emergency appendectomy two days before and couldn't host. Like I was genuinely like I had been okay with the concept up until that point because I had a feeling that we might actually get the guys from Psych. And then we got them, and then one of them couldn't show, so it was immediately like, fuck this gimmick. It's terrible. There you go. No shows kill territories, Nick. 
<laughs> it wasn't his fault. He called in. He felt so bad. I was, my heart was broken. Um, and I was like 21 or so. Like we were in college when this shit happened. It wasn't like I was a kid and like looking forward to this. <laughs> like I was an adult and I was like, no, that's not fair. <laughs> Uh, I was much cooler in college, I promise everybody. Um, <laughs> so, uh, did you have any plugs this week? Oh, as usual, folks can follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. Uh, as always, also, uh, folks can check out The Wrestling Estate. Our most recent roundtable involved all of us uh, looking back on the career of Mr. Matt Hardy, uh, choosing some favorite matches, favorite moments, really kind of assessing what it all meant for him, uh, what was right, what was wrong. Lots and lots of Matt Hardy goodness from myself and the uh, whole crew over at the Wrestling Estate. So please check that out. Um, I am sitting down tomorrow as we record this to interview one of my favorite active uh, wrestling personalities, someone I've talked a little bit about on the show. I don't want to say anything yet or any more than what I'm saying right now. Uh, but hopefully I will have some good news for you in the future where you can read about the sit-down talk that I had with one of my favorite current wrestling people. Oh, wait, wait, before you say anything, I should also throw out there that uh, people should check out patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W if they're enjoying the show and think about throwing us a dollar or two monthly to pay for production costs. If you throw us just one dollar, we'll give you a call out on the show because you're a sexy wizard. If you give us two or more dollars, you'll also have access to the pre-show notes, uh, some special other pre-show content that'll be popping up in the coming weeks. Uh, as well as my follow-up files, the extensive notes that I create after every episode where I break down any kind of references or allusions or uh, unclear jokes that we, uh, that we use. Uh, I'll give you some historical references. I'll give you other video to watch based on our conversation that either uh, explains things that we were discussing or illustrates our points somehow or is just plain cool. I'll show you pictures, I'll link you to other podcasts, further reading, etc., etc. A lot of extra value. If you really uh, listen to this podcast every Monday and then open up those follow-up files Tuesday, you really have enough wrestling goodness to last you all the way through the end of the week. So please consider supporting the show at the $1 or $2 level. Our listenership keeps growing and growing and growing, and I'm really happy to see that. So uh, let's get those Patreon numbers growing as well. If you appreciate the show, if you love what Nick and I do, if you start to think about the uh, work hours that we have in this and scratch your head and wonder how we do it, the fact of the matter is we do it in a very hand-to-mouth manner, and every little bit of support counts. So if you can find it in your heart, if you can find it in your wallet, if you can find it in your soul to support our show, check us out on patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and give us your fucking money. You're such a hopeless romantic when it comes to that. Um... I'm really trying to, you know, to, to, to slowly, slowly draw them over to our side. And uh, uh, Dave uh, would be remiss if he didn't mention that we will also be going forward announcing the how wrestling explains topics for the uh hwetw so last week's episode on the post for the follow-up files we also announced this week's episode and we'll be doing that going forward uh in terms of topics just makes it easier uh, instead of me having to remember to uh remember what we're doing the next week and i don't want to have to do that i just want to come in 10 minutes before the show write a bunch of notes and then just fart out an episode. So, uh, yeah. And you can check me out at 
the Nixter. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at How Wrestling Explains dot You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Store. And Pocket Casts, also iTunes, if I didn't say iTunes, but Pocket Cast, really. Thanks, Pocket Casts. Uh, I also wanted to mention, uh, take this time before I forgot, to mention that the videos are coming back. We did not stop doing the videos. I have just been working on one for about two weeks. We'll be changing the format of the show going forward. Uh, it'll be a separate thing that not a pulled part of the conversations we have on the podcast. So going forward, the scheduling might be slightly different. Uh, we'll announce when we figure out exactly what we're doing going forward. But uh, we should be coming out with the video that Dave mentioned uh, by the time you see this. I know. I've really, I've really put you in a bind here, Nick. You definitely have to finish that video or you're going to have to cut the show to shreds. <laughs> Thanks, Dick. That's what I do. Welcome to You Heard with Purd. I'm Purd Happily. The story of our guest today is that they are from the Department of Parks and Recreation, Ben Wyatt and Tom Haverford. What up, Purd? Big fan. Me too, Purd. What up? The thing about this first question is, I'd like to ask you about the Harvest Festival. Purd, it's gonna be amazing. Carnival rides, games, Sweden was even building a plus-size roller coaster for some of Pawnee's obese thrill-seekers. You must be this wide to ride. Wow, that's gonna be a pretty big roller coaster. Yep. Hey, guys, how'd it go? Well, there were some sticky moments. Let's go to the videotape. Who hasn't had gay thoughts? Who? You okay? You're... Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, you know, sometimes I feel like I might need glasses. Is there a bird in here? I swear I keep seeing a bird in the studio. Maybe that's How did this happen? He was fine until Bird started asking him about the boy mayor's stuff. What's wrong with you? You look psychotic. I was 18 when I was elected mayor, okay? So excuse me for that. Cindy Eckert had just turned me down for senior prom. Do you know how that feels? I should call her. I should, I should. No, I shouldn't, and I'm not going to, and I'm proud of myself for that. And then he talked about feeling up Cindy Eckert for the first time for about five minutes, and then the show ended, as did our careers and probably Harvest Fest. Boom, sadness, that's the one. Tongues.